Well, again, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope that you're doing well. Hope you're having a good weekend and enjoying some nice weather here. We were, my wife and I were in Florida last week, and, uh, you know, when you're from Ohio and you get to go to Florida, like, while it's still spring or winter, you want everyone in Ohio to really suffer. But uh, I remember looking at my phone at one point, it was warmer here than it was down there, and so I'm mad at all of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I'm glad we have some nice weather today. Uh, well, as we get going here today, we are going to continue on in our series called The Empowered Life through the book of Acts. And uh, as we start this morning, I want to start off with a question, and that is this. Who here likes to put together puzzles? And by that, I mean like a jigsaw puzzle. Does anybody like to do that? Uh, well, I don't. Personally, I, I don't like them. <laughs> uh, but my daughter Miriam, who's five, loves to put together them. And in fact, she's quite impressive with them. And so uh, because I love her, I'll oftentimes sit down with her and help her to put together one of these puzzles. And uh, the thing about a, a puzzle is this. For them to work, you need to have an accurate picture of what it is you're trying to put together, and you need to have all the pieces. In fact, there's nothing more frustrating than working on one only to find out that, that some pieces are missing, which in my house with four little kids is basically every puzzle that we own. <laughs> there's some sort of piece missing. And, and I'm sure you can relate to that. You've put in all of this time and effort into working on the, this, creating this image, only to get near the end to realize that you are missing some pieces. And again, it's frustrating. And it keeps the image you're trying to create from being complete. And yet, as we approach today's uh, topic of being empowered over the enemy, and by enemy I do mean Satan and demons... My suspicion is, is that many of us have tried to put together the puzzle or the image of Christianity without understanding these important pieces, or we've left them out altogether. You see, I think most of us, we don't really realize just how impacted we have been by our our Western culture, and and particularly in recent Western culture. And and what I mean by that is, is, is that if you could hop into a DeLorean, and by that I mean like the Back to the Future time machine, um... Those things existed, which maybe, I, I want the hoverboard. I just wish the hoverboard existed, but, but just go with me here. If you could hop into the DeLorean and go back to, into the future, uh, to any period of Western civilization prior to three or 400 years ago, what you would find is that our Western society was very aware of the spirit world and its power. And what I mean by that is, uh, part of the reason for that is because, by and large, uh, our Western world, uh, the average person had a God-centered approach to life. I'm not, in saying that, I'm not implying that everyone was a genuine believer. But what I am saying is that when it came to explaining the big things of life, people started from a God-centered approach. Now, to be fair, because of that, uh, at times, people came up with some pretty bizarre explanations for the things that they saw in the world, which were then later proven to be inaccurate. And yet, as, as our culture began to shift in that period of what has been called the Enlightenment, one of the things that you saw take place was that reason and rationalism and even naturalism became the prevailing worldview. And so that's why during this time period of the Enlightenment, you saw uh, uh, worldviews like deism begin to take root. And that's because deism allowed you to have a belief in God, but to do so in a way that was completely naturalistic. And so what that meant was, is that you could, uh, you, you would approach the Bible and you would say, like, miracles didn't really happen. Um, you, you would look at the life of Jesus and you would say, the point is, is that he's just teaching us some good moral lessons. He was a, a, a great teacher. 
um, who was unfortunately killed by some bad guys. And as well, you would, you would look at the stuff in the Bible about Satan and demons and angels, and you would just, you know, that's just myth. That's just fantasy. We don't need to pretend like that, that stuff's real anymore. That's why during this time you would get something like the Jefferson Bible, which if you don't know what that is, uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of our presidents, took a New Testament, and he cut out all the portions that had to do with the miraculous or, or even Jesus' resurrection, you know, just these core tenets of our faith. And it just became a book about how to be a good person. But not only did, during this time period, these new ideologies and, and even religions were, were birthed like deism, but, but also this shift had an had a impact on Christianity as well. And we don't have time this morning to look at all the different ways that the Enlightenment impacted Christianity, other than to say that, that even for some of us today, I think even for some of us today, we are still being impacted in a way maybe we're unaware of. For some of us, we've become rationalistic or naturalistic in our faith, or at least that's the temptation. And so what that means is that for some of us, the thought of supernatural things occurring seems ridiculous or unlikely. It means that any talk of of Satan and demons feels childish or even absurd. Perhaps for some of you, when when I or the other pastors refer to uh, demons or Satan, you, you, you feel uh, awkward or even embarrassed. Like, man, seriously, do I go to a church that believes in this stuff? Or maybe for some of you, you've not gone to that extreme, but, but somehow instead you've convinced yourself that, that the supernatural and that the spiritual realm that, that the Bible talks about, that it does exist, but that for whatever reason, it seems to be confined to biblical times. And yes, you know, you, you believe that Jesus and the apostles, they really did do those miracles. And, and yes, Satan and demons were active in the world. They, they, they did used to torment people and in, in, impact them. But, but all of that stuff's kind of stopped now. And so we don't really need to worry about it anymore. And so what happens is that you can wake up and you can read your Bible. And you can be engaged and be like, yeah, okay, so this is what happened. And, and Jesus did these things and the apostles did these things. And, and again, yes, demons were inflicting people and, and Jesus would then cast them out or the apostles would cast them out. And then you can close your Bible and walk out your front door and live your life as if, if your reality is totally different and removed from what you just read in the Bible. And look, I I realize that this isn't all of us. And in fact, it might not even be very many of us. But I think the truth is, is that we have all, to some degree, been impacted by our culture's worldview. And whether we want to admit it or not. And I think we've been particularly impacted when it comes to this idea of having an enemy. You see, I think the fact that for for us to realize that there are these real spiritual beings called uh, demons and, and this being called Satan... That there's this invisible spiritual realm that exists right alongside of our physical, visible realm. That like, like literally right now in this room, there is a spiritual realm that, that most of us are not seeing. I'm assuming most of us aren't seeing. I'm not seeing it. But it, it's real. It's as real as, you know, this table I'm touching. Do you believe that? You see, the problem is, is if we go back to that analogy of putting together a puzzle... When you have some missing pieces to the puzzle, things get really messed up. And I think that when you and I approach the world and approach Christianity with a skewed view of the spiritual world, of our, a skewed view of our enemy, I think that we get messed up. You see, I think for most of us, we've been, we've been trained to think of, of some of these things in, in, in a cartoonish version of them. 
You know, we picture, you know, some sports team's mascot, the Red Devils, or we picture Will Ferrell dressed up as the devil in an SNL skit or whatever. Or maybe you picture, you know, the latest Marvel comic villain or whatever. And, and you know, as I was preparing for this message, I was, I was trying really hard to not quote C.S. Lewis. And that's because we always quote C.S. Lewis. And, and alas, I finally gave up. And I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. He's just too brilliant on this subject. And, and in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which, if you don't know what that is, it's a fictional account of, of this senior demon named uh, Screwtape mentoring his nephew, a, a junior demon named Wormwood. And so he's, he's giving him advice on how to be a good demon. And there's this one section that's just so profound. And, and here's what he writes. This is Screwtape talking to Wormwood. He says, Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. And patient there, he means the human being that that Wormwood's inflicting. He says the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures and the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since we cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. You see, what Lewis is suggesting there in that brilliant but fictitious dialogue is is the very fact that most of us are unaware of demons, and even when we think of them, it feels ridiculous or childish, that that is actually intentional. And it's a significant part of their strategy towards us. But here's something I want you to keep in mind. This denial or this ridicule of demonic beings is actually well within the minority of thought and belief in human history. You see, as I've already mentioned, if if you and I hopped into that DeLorean and into that time machine and we went back into the majority of time periods in history, we would see that our current view, our current Western view is new and it's by no means the majority. And we might be tempted to think, well, you know, that's because... You know, people back then were just ignorant or, you know, they didn't have all of the technology and the science that we have today. I don't think so. See, because here's the here's the reality that not only is this true of people historically, but it continues to remain true in in most of the world today. In fact, if you hopped on a plane right now, you went to Port Columbus, got on a plane and you flew to places like Brazil or the Middle East, or Southeast Asia, or Africa, what you would find is that belief in evil spirits is common. In fact, recently I was talking to a friend of mine who's from Africa, and we were talking about the fact that just kind of our our Western view of some of these things, and it was laughable to him that someone would try to deny demonic beings. He's like, I wish I could put them on a plane and fly them over to Africa to meet a witch doctor, and then see if they walk away still feeling like, oh yeah, this stuff's not real. And again, I just think we have to be careful here because it's easy to forget how limited our own culture's worldview is. Uh, In fact, this week I came across this fascinating interview uh, between uh, New York Magazine and uh, the now deceased uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And it was just this, again, it was fascinating, but he's, they're talking about his career as a Supreme Court Justice. And at some point the interviewer asked him, do you believe in heaven and hell? And Scalia's like, well, of course I do. And so they went on to ask a couple other questions. And then the guy went to change the subject back towards law. And Scalia, in the transcript, it says, he leans in and he whispers, I even believe in the devil. 
And uh, this apparently so caught off the, the guy from New York Magazine, and he's so dumbfounded that he went on to ask a couple of clarifying questions. And after a while, he just says this to him. He says, I mean, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And Scalia responds and says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil? Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. And so the guy from the magazine responds. He says, I hope you weren't sensing contempt from me. Yeah, right. (laughs) He says, it wasn't your belief that surprised me so much as how boldly you expressed it. And Scalia responds by saying, I was offended by that. I really was. Which you just, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. And they're like, wow. And so the guy's like, well, I'm sorry to have offended you. And Scalia says, have you ever read the screw tape letters? And the reporter says, well, yes, I have. And Scalia's like, so there you are. That's a great book. It really is just a study of human nature. And then the interviewer so clearly wants to get out of this conversation that, again, he changes the subject back to something else. And again, it was just so fascinating. It was even funny to read. And the reason I shared is because I think it illustrates just how out of touch our current culture's views and beliefs are. And even the elitism that it expresses. And so now that I have just given you the world's longest introduction to a message, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's pray and we'll get there. Father, we do, uh, as has already been prayed this morning, we do ask and invite the Holy Spirit to come to to help us, Lord, to uh, illuminate the scriptures to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that these are not my opinions, our church's opinions, Lord, but this is your word to us. I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know what you have for us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for the rest of our time this morning, uh, I want to walk us through uh, these four truths that we see confirmed in the book of Acts. And I say confirmed because we see them in other parts of Scripture as well. And we're actually going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today. And, And that's because I want you to see that this is not my opinion. But this is actually what the Word of God teaches. And so the four truths we want to look at this morning are this. Number one, you and I have an enemy. Truth number two, this enemy is destructive and powerful. Truth number three, Jesus has power and authority over them and has defeated them. And then finally, truth number four, Jesus has given us, his followers, power and authority over them. And so starting with number one, you and I have an enemy. Now, I've already just spent all this time in the introduction arguing why I think it's plausible to believe in Satan and demons. But ultimately, the reason you should believe that they exist is because that is what the scriptures testify to. For example, we see Satan and demons mentioned in both the Old Testament and in the New. We see Satan explicitly mentioned in or or talked about in Genesis 3 as the one uh, deceiving Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we see him mentioned all throughout the book of Revelation. And so literally from the first book to the last book... The scriptures explicitly talk about or assume that there are real evil spiritual beings. 
And we don't have time this morning to theorize what they are or why they exist. The simple point I'm trying to make to you is that they do exist and that they are our, they are our enemy. I mean, the reality is this. Jesus clearly believed for himself uh, that this is true, and so did his early followers. And that's why last week in Pastor Chris's message, when he walked us through Acts chapter 10, where we see the gospel go to the Gentiles for the first time, that while Peter is preaching to them and describing who Jesus is and what he came to do, he says this in verse uh, 37 of Acts 10. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so even if this, uh, these, this verse 38 was the only verse that we had on Jesus and the devil, we would see very clearly that Jesus believes in an actual being called the devil and, and believes that he's out to oppress and to harm humanity. And yet, as I've already said, far from this being the only verse we have, this is testified all the way throughout Scripture. We see Jesus personally interact with Satan uh, at the very beginning of his ministry while being tempted by him in the wilderness. As well, we see Jesus go toe-to-toe with demons all throughout his ministry, casting them out of people and setting people free. Peter, one of his most foundational uh, disciples and apostles, says this in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so again, the first truth that I want you to know and to understand this morning is that you have an enemy. And this enemy hates you. He would love nothing more than to destroy your life. In fact, that's how Jesus talked about him in uh, in John 10.10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so that's the first truth. You have an enemy. The second truth I want you to, to know and understand is this. This enemy that we face is destructive and powerful. Again, this is a truth that we see all throughout the scriptures. The verse that we just looked at in Acts 10, 38, says that the devil is oppressing people. We know from Jesus' ministry that demons inflicted people both physically and mentally. Perhaps the most famous example of this is is the Gerenices demoniac. We see this in Mark 5. And if you're familiar with the story, this is the man that that as Jesus approached him, he, he just began to freak out a little bit. And Jesus uh, knows that it's a demon, and he asks the demon his name, and he responds by saying, uh, it's legion. And that's because there was a multitude of demons living inside of this guy, and they were harming him both mentally and physically, to the point that the guy would cut himself, to the point that the, the community tried to have him restrained with chains, and he would just break them off. And he was so tormented that he was out living in isolation among the tombs, And so again, you just read this story and this guy is so completely tormented by these evil spirits. As well, later on in Mark 9, we see this father bring his son to Jesus who's being inflicted by a demon. And the dad tells Jesus that the spirit has made his son mute, has made him unable to speak. The father also tells him that the spirit will throw him to the ground and cause him to, to foam at the mouth. That the Spirit has even tried to cast his son into fire or into water in order to try to destroy him. And so this is no joke. This this evil spirit is, is completely affecting this little boy physically. 
And yet, when you read that passage, one of the things you pick up there is just the fear and the hopelessness that this dad has. He has witnessed over and over again this demon exercise power over his son. And so, yes, demons are real, and they are powerful, and they hurt people. And not only do they hurt people physically and mentally, but they also impact people spiritually. We're told in 1 Timothy 4.1 that demons lie and that they, they deceive and they try to get people to believe in false doctrine. As well, we're told in places like Deuteronomy 32 and in 1 Corinthians 10 that there is a connection between idolatry and false religions with that of demons. In those passages, it talks about the fact that when people are, are worshiping false gods or when they fall into idolatry, that they're actually worshiping demons. They're sacrificing to them. As well, when speaking of Satan, the Apostle John, in 1 John 5.19, when he's talking about contrasting believers with unbelievers, he says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of, the wor- of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus himself, in talking about Satan, calls him the evil one. And that's in Matthew 13, 19. In John 12, 31, he refers to him as the ruler of this world. And so again, when we take all of this evidence and all of these verses and compile them together, and this is just a sampling that I could have shared with you, We see that this enemy that we face is powerful and is destructive. But just in case you're tempted to lose heart here, let's move on to that third truth that we see in the scriptures, and that is this. Jesus has power and authority over them, and he has defeated them. Now look, you can't read through the Gospels in the New Testament and not walk away with that conclusion. That is is explicitly clear that this is true. A significant portion of Jesus' earthly ministry was given to casting out demons. And one of the things that I think is so significant about that is that when you consider Jesus' other miraculous works uh, in his earthly life, most of them had been done in some uh, way or in some form in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is that you read the Old Testament and, and you see that people were sometimes healed physically. You see that people were fed miraculously. And not only that, but you also occasionally saw people raised from the dead. And yet, as far as I'm aware, there's not one single report of of someone being delivered from a demon in the Old Testament. I mean, you have the whole uh, story there with David playing the harp for Saul while he's being inflicted. And it says the, the spirit leaves. But I would in no way put that on the same page as demon directly looking at a demon and casting it out of someone. And so that's why I think because of this. The, the, the crowds were so astonished when Jesus began this in his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, it's the first miracle that we see in Mark. He delivers a, a person oppressed. And it says there in verse 27 about the crowds, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And so I think we see here from how the crowd reacts that they were shocked. They were not expecting this at all. 
as well, when you go throughout Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, you see that even the way that the demons respond to him when they would come near Jesus, that, that they understood that he had power and authority over them. They recognized him. They would, they would encounter Jesus and they would say, you're the son of God. They would say things like, you're not going to, to, to destroy us, are you? As well, when you see Jesus uh, uh, deal with demons, that, or not only with demons, but we see that he came in direct opposition to Satan. I quoted to you earlier uh, the first half of John 10.10, but if you look at the, the full verse, it says this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, our enemy is trying to to take and destroy life. But Jesus says, I have come to give life. I have come to free you from the enemy. And that's why the Apostle John could say later on in 1 John, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, I think we have to be careful here not to fall into dualism as a believer where we put Jesus and the enemy, specifically the devil, on an equal playing field. Because the truth is, they are not. Jesus has all power and authority over them. And as I've already said, he has defeated them and will soon destroy them. You see, Satan, I think, thought that he was being clever and was exercising power and authority over Jesus when he enticed Judas and the rest of Jerusalem into having Jesus crucified. I think he thought like, oh, I'm I'm really getting after him. And yet, ironically, the cross was the very thing that defeated Satan and his kingdom. You see, Satan is just a pawn in the hand of a sovereign God. And that's why I love Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And you who were, sorry. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The New Living Translation translates verse 15 this way. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You see, Jesus defeated our enemies at the cross, which not only include Satan and demons, but also sin and death. However, as is the case with all of those, they are defeated, but they are not yet destroyed. And the key word there is yet. Because what the Bible teaches, and specifically in the book of Revelation, is that there is coming a day when Jesus will totally and utterly destroy Satan, demons, sin, and death. And so, yes, Satan and demons, they are defeated. However, they continue to fight us. We are still in a battle right now. And I was thinking about it this week, and I think that this is accurate to history. I was thinking about the Civil War and the fact that that, uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union so uh, decimated the Confederate troops, they lost so many soldiers that there was no way that they could come back from that. And so essentially the war was over, although it would continue to rage on for another two years. And I think in the same way, uh, it's true of our reality here. Satan and demons have been defeated, uh, but they're not yet destroyed, but they will be. It's just a matter of time. So again, the third truth we saw this morning is that Jesus has power and authority over Satan and demons and has defeated them. 
Let's move on to that fourth and final truth that we see. And that is this. Jesus has given us, his followers, power and authority over the enemy as well. Now, you've probably been sitting here for 30 minutes thinking, I thought this was supposed to be a teaching out of the book of Acts. And if you've been thinking or wondering that, you're right. I just, I felt like I needed to do some groundwork in order to set us up to a place where we, we could look at Acts and understand what it is we're seeing there. And even before we get there, I just have a couple more verses to show you from outside of Acts. And the first thing I want to show you is this, that as a child of God, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. And as, uh, with that uh, as your identity, you have the power and the authority to resist the devil. We see this in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As well, in 1 Peter 5, I already mentioned verse 8, where Peter says the devil roars around like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the very next verse, verse 9, he says this. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So again, we as followers of Jesus have authority and power to resist our enemy. As well, in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, Paul says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now look, in that passage, Satan and demons aren't explicitly mentioned there. But I think there's no doubt that at some level, this is who Paul had in mind. He understood that, that it was these demonic influences that were, were trying to deceive people that, that are behind these lofty arguments, these, these things that are raised against the knowledge of God. And not only that, but I think this passage has a strong link to Ephesians 6 where he is explicit. It's a very famous passage. But in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil uh, day And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times and with all prayer and supplication, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. You see, I think Paul is very clear and he understood and believed that you and I as Christians have an enemy. But he's also uh, clear and I believe he understood and believed that you and I have a role in fighting our enemy. And not only are, do we have a role, but we have actually been given the power and the authority to do so. You see, I think not only are we supposed to defend ourselves from our enemy, but we are actually supposed to fight back. We're supposed to engage and, and take ground back from him. You see, every time you pray, you engage in spiritual warfare. 
Every time you share the good news of the gospel with an unbeliever, you are engaging in spiritual warfare. Every time you stand up against injustice in our community, you are fighting. Every time you break, uh, serve the poor, break down racial barriers, you are fighting the enemy. And as a result, the kingdom of God, it expands. Its influence reaches out into our dark world. But you know, it's not just those really big things that, that, that uh, engage us in fighting. It's also the little things. It's the little things that can, can hurt him. Things like when, when uh, you with humility apologize to someone you've hurt. Or when you confess hidden sin in your life. When you shine light on those dark areas of your heart that you've been keeping hidden. Because here's one thing I know about our enemy. He loves it if he can get you to hide sin. He loves it if he can get you to believe that you're the only one. Or that if, if, if so and so knew this about you, they would reject you. And yet when you and I, when we step into the light... When we expose the sin in our hearts, he begins to lose his power and his grip on us. And so confess those hidden sins in your life. But but not only that, when you continue to trust Jesus in the midst of suffering, you are fighting the enemy. When far from your faith being destroyed while you suffer, instead it grows and gets stronger, you are engaging in warfare. You see, I, I think one of the things we've got to always keep bringing ourselves back to is that our fight is not against flesh and blood. And at the same time, as a result of that, our weapons are different than the weapons of the world. And so not only do we see that, that these things are the ways that we engage and, and use that power and authority that we've been given, but also when you look at the early church, one of the things you see is that part of the, the, the call on their life was to actually free people who were oppressed and held captive by demons. Jesus in Luke 9, when he sends out the 12 apostles on their first mission trip, he tells them in, in verses 1 and 2 this, He called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and to heal. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, that was the 12 and they were unique. They had a unique calling. Well, actually, just one chapter later in chapter 10, Jesus sends out another group this time, although it's not just the 12. It's a group of 72 other followers. And he gives them the exact same mission. And that's why in uh, verse 17 of chapter 10, it says this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so I think Jesus is saying there is, yeah, yeah, of course, I've given you this power, but the greater miracle is the fact that your names are written in heaven. So we can't lose sight of that. But at the same time, I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that that this was part of God's call for them. Again, it wasn't just the 12 and it wasn't just, I don't think, the 72. As you move into the book of Acts, you see this is what the early church did. And in Acts 5, 16, we're told this. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In Acts chapter 8, Luke describes Philip's ministry to Samaria. And and even though Philip was not an apostle, we're told this in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. And there's a few other examples in Acts, mostly dealing with Paul's ministry later on. But I want to just show you one more uh, story out of Acts as a way to bring all of this together. And in fact, it's one of my favorite stories, although it probably shouldn't be, as you'll see in a moment. But, but if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19, it's on page 928 in our pew Bibles. And don't worry, I'm almost done here, so don't panic like, wait, we're just now opening the Bible. We've been reading scripture all along. But in Acts 19, starting in verse 11, we're told this. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man with whom the evil spirit was on leaped on him, mastered them all, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And so again, I just want you to to see here from this story, uh, is that everything, those four truths that I just shared with you, they're all right here. For example, you read this story and it's clear that we have an enemy, that there are actually evil spirits in the world. And based on this story, they seem to be somewhat intelligent. But not only that, we see that this enemy can be very destructive and powerful. I mean, look, let's let's just be honest here. If you show up to a fistfight wearing clothes, but leave the fistfight not wearing clothes, you lost, right? I think it's just real clear, like you lost. And maybe it's just the middle schooler in me, but... I cannot read that line about them leaving wounded and naked and not laugh, you know, just that's a bad day when that's the description for for your fight there. And so, again, what I want you to see is that this enemy is powerful and destructive. But but isn't it fascinating that the demons respond to these seven brothers who are trying this out by who have invoked the name of Jesus by saying, Jesus, I know. Isn't that interesting? They know who Jesus is. They know the power and the authority that he has over them. But not only that, I think it's interesting that they say, and Paul, I recognize. But who the heck are you? You know, that's the implication. Like, Paul, I recognize, and Jesus, I know, but you don't seem to have the power and the authority to to talk to me like this. And the reason I think that they recognized Paul is that Paul was walking in the power and the authority that he had been given from Jesus over the demonic world. Because as we just saw earlier at the beginning of the passage, it said in the text that evil spirits were leaving people because of Paul's ministry to those who were oppressed. And the thing that I love about this story, besides the, the immature part of it, um, is, the, is, the middle, is the many revival that you see take place as a result of people getting free from demons. If you go on to look at the story, verse 17 says this, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted the value of them, and they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, so that the word of God of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, when we as believers walk in the power and the authority that we have from Jesus, lives are changed and people are set free. And I know that this whole topic it really makes us uncomfortable. Maybe some of you have just been squirming in your seat this whole time, like, ah, I, I came on the wrong Sunday. I should have slept in or whatever. Or maybe if, if you don't go to that, that point of just wanting to deny it, maybe you just are, or this whole thing just makes you fearful. You're just like, I would just rather not think about that and pretend like it doesn't exist. But here's the truth. Whether you feel like it or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have his authority and power over the enemy. And I just believe that God wants us to wake up to this reality and begin to use that power and authority to help those who are hurting. To push back the kingdom of darkness in our world. You see, because here's the thing. When these important puzzle pieces are missing from our theology and from our practice, when we're not aware of them, we make people the enemy rather than the demonic forces influencing them. And so you have that coworker, or that neighbor who's involved in the occult or who just is a, a materialist or whatever, and you think that they're the problem. You begin to hate them. But when you realize that there are these evil forces influencing them, and yes, they have a, a responsibility, they have allowed that through their unbelief and all of that. But they're not the enemy. We've been called to love them and to reach out to them. But, but it's hard to do that when you don't believe that this stuff's real, when it's not a part of your worldview. But not only that, I think the other reason we need to wake up is because in order for us to, to minister uh, effectively to each other and to this world, we need to be aware of these things. You see, because if it never enters your mind that somebody's illness or that their trial or that their suffering that they're going through, or that the, the sin or the stronghold in their life, if, if it never comes into your mind that that might be uh, coming from their enemy, then you won't ever pray against it. Instead, you'll say, well, you know, have you gone to the doctor? Have you gone to the, psych, you know, the psychiatrist or whatever? And I'm not saying we don't do that. But this has to be part of the equation as we're, as we're coming alongside people and ministering to them. I mean, if it never enters your mind, like, well, maybe you're being spiritually attacked right now. Maybe I should pray against that and ask the Lord to bring protection. If that never enters your mind, we're not going to be effectively ministering to people because this, this is in the scriptures. This is how the early church functioned. And so, again, I think the Lord just wants to wake us up because he, there's people that he wants to set free. Jesus wants his kingdom to grow and to expand. And if, if we do this... Then as a result, as it says there in Acts 19, Jesus is going to be lifted up. His name's going to be extolled and honored. He is going to be glorified. And that's ultimately what we want, right? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we... Oh, Lord. I'm sure many of us would rather have this not be our reality. But it is. We don't understand everything about it, but we know that there are real evil uh, spirits and forces out there that would, would love to, uh, that, that have brought so much destruction to our own lives and to uh, our city and to the world. And yet, Jesus, I pray that we would not lose sight of the fact that you have overcome them. Lord, that we would not lose sight of the fact that, that you have power and authority over them, that you defeated them on the cross. 
That their time is limited and you will one day destroy them. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray that we could rest from that place this morning, but that we would also be compelled to to move and to walk in the power and the authority that you have given us over them. So, Lord, I just we ask for your help. We ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us, Lord. These things are not easy to understand or to to know how to, to practically put them into place, but we just ask for your help. We ask for the Spirit's guidance, Lord. I also just ask if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not know you, who, who this message maybe just seems so out there, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would break in and you would help them to, to know and to understand who Jesus is and that he's come to set them free and that he has the power to do so, Lord. I pray that they would just be able to turn their eyes to you and see Jesus for all his beauty, all of his glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.